Welcome to the Ortho Joe Show, a joint production of the Journal of Bone and Joint Surgery and Ortho Evidence. In our world, orthopedic research is king, and current topics from our respective publications are analyzed weekly. Here is Mohit Bandari from Ortho Evidence and Mark Swinkowski from the Journal of Bone and Joint Surgery. Well, welcome, welcome, uh, everyone. Welcome, Mark, and welcome, uh, Mike McKee. And I, but but I'll, I'm going to give you a, a proper introduction. But first, first, we have to, you know, merge this out. You know, we have a cup here, <laughs> Mike, that uh, you will see is going to change your life. Um, yeah, you know, exactly. it provides all kinds of great fluids. And I won't, I'll trust you put whatever fluid of choice you have. But for us, it's coffee this uh, this afternoon. Let me just uh, take a moment also just to. Just, let me just say, though, Mike, it does hold Molson. Okay, good. <laughs> then we're good to go. <laughs> uh, doesn't need an introduction, but uh, I will give one to Professor and Chairman of Orthopedic uh, Surgery at the University of Arizona College of Medicine in Phoenix and immediate past president of the Orthopedic Trauma Association. Um, for many of us, uh, he has mentored us in so many ways. Um, and I think tonight and uh, this evening, uh, this is an evening edition of our of our Ortho Joe uh, session. Uh, we're going to really uh, dive deep into, you know, I think some of the things that have um, been real impacts um, in his career and probably get some takes on some of the uh, challenges uh, with some of the research he's done and some of the impacts he's had. Mark, from your perspective, when you think, and I'm going to ask you to start first, and the reason is I'm, uh, I want to get your take on this. When you think about... Um, Dr. McKee's impact in orthopedics, what's the first thing that um, for you uh, comes to mind? Well, I think Mike's uh, been one of the real leaders in establishing the multi-center trials uh, in fracture topics and a real leader. And the main topic we wanna to talk about tonight, clavicle fracture, I can't, I can't think of uh, a bigger change in the way we've managed patients in my career anyway. Uh, and uh, Mike is responsible in large part for, for that change, but you know, a, a real leader in establishing the framework to do multi-center trials, uh, first in Canada and, and then adding worldwide trials uh, as well. So he's a, he's a real he's a real leader, pretty decent hockey player as well. Um, but he has he has too little faith in the Maple Leafs uh, these days, I think. So particularly after well, last year, but we don't want to talk hockey because that we're way off topic here. <laughs> Sounds good. <laughs> Okay, so um, you know, uh, I don't know, uh, Mark, if you want to lead off with usually it, it's it's a publication, but I'm happy to uh, also. I've, I've got lots of questions for Dr. Well, McKee. Well, if you don't mind, uh, you know, so the the key paper was 2007, if if memory serves, and it was uh, the Canadian Orthopedic Trauma Group uh, on uh, the randomized trial of uh, conservative care or non-surgical care versus surgical care and. Uh, it, it was a real game changer. And then I think uh, McKee and McKee, there were two McKees on the follow-up meta-analysis that came out in 2012 that uh, pooled data from six studies, which further enhanced the major findings being that the functional outcomes were better with internal fixation uh, and that uh, symptomatic malunion and nonunion were a real uh, worry for those treated non-surgically. And, I, and the, I think these two papers are the major ones, but of course there've been many, many trials uh, that have sort of backed up those uh, seminal findings. But, um, you know, what I would say is that um, 
it's, it's pretty clear to me that the inclusion criteria for both the COTS trial as well as subsequent trials were significant displacement. And what I've seen just in my part of the world is that the indication has drifted towards the fracture of the clavicle is the indication uh, without displacement. And, and Mike, I don't know if, if you see that in Phoenix these days or you were seeing it in Toronto, but there seems to be a lot of drift in the indications. And what, what are your current thoughts now? Well, I, I agree. When you look back at uh, that study that we did, it was for a very specific uh, set of fractures in a very specific population. And you know, the impetus for that study was that we were seeing so many patients who were coming to us with um, non-union and, and symptomatic malunion after fractures um, that we thought maybe there's a better way to do this than to leave them all alone, uh, which was the traditional teaching. And like you, I don't think I ever fixed the clavicle fractures as a resident, whereas now it's one of the more routine things we do. We decided to pick a healthy population, so um, age 16 to 60, uh, with a completely displaced fracture. <clears throat> we talked about trying to measure displacement. It was actually quite difficult to do, and there's a variety of different ways to do it. So we just said there had to be complete displacement. And in that study, that worked out to fractures that were on average about a centimeter and a half or almost two centimeters short and a centimeter and a half uh, depressed. So significant displacement on average. And we found that for those healthy active patients, um, they did pretty well when it was fixed surgically. It was a technically highly successful surgery. It's within the grasp of the average uh, orthopedic fracture surgeon. And uh, there's some significant benefits to it, including a much more rapid return to function if you look specifically in your outcome criteria for that, that specific outcome. It's hard to pick up more rapid return to function unless you do some examinations early on in the, in the process of the post-op uh, period. And uh, that was replicated by you know, more than a dozen randomized trials now really showing more of the same, same thing. It's interesting that some of the conclusions from those studies are different from our conclusion, um, but the actual raw data in almost all the clinical trials done is very, very similar to what that original study showed. And if I can just give a shout out for our research team at the time, there was another similar study done um, that was never published because so many patients were lost to follow up. And our research team uh, was so good at getting patients back and so dedicated, Lynn Vicente and uh, Lisa Wild, they got all those patients back and, and that made a huge difference for our study as well as the other research coordinators around the, the country. Yeah. You know, I have seen some uh, indication creep, shall we say, um, both in terms of the patient's uh, profile and also the degree of displacement. And uh, I, it is a bit concerning. Um, most clavicle fractures that are minimally displaced uh, or moderately displaced will heal well and, and fairly promptly in most patients. The surgical risk goes way up in, in diabetics, substance abusers, uh, non-compliant patients, et cetera. So we're, uh, personally, I'm very, very selective as to who I, I fix uh, in those settings. But we need to be careful that that indication creep doesn't, doesn't continue because it's not a good thing in general. You know, along the same lines, Mike, like I went back and I looked at seven years ago, there was an orthobuzz. Orthobuzz is, in this particular case, orthobuzz is sort of the editor's choice. And, and Mark, I believe it was your very first orthobuzz on your editor's choice in which you actually had named this trial as being the seminal trial. Um, and you had put out a couple of statements and along the same lines, Mike, you know, after that study, there was an explosion of uh, ORIF for clavicle fracture mid-shaft. But um, Mark had written at that point, we should not misinterpret the COT study findings. 
when you look back at all the different interpretations people have talked about, is it really just about the displace undisplaced issue? Or what are some of the other common ways in which that study you think may have been weaponized uh, in a way that wasn't necessarily um, you know, your intention and in your guidance in that paper? So that's an excellent point. And you know, if you if you think back to that period of time, really no one fixed clavicle fractures. And we, we came out and said that there are some specific advantages of fixing them, and we're quite emphatic about it, because we had to, we had to say something that was um, the people would notice, if you know what I mean. The pendulum had been so far swung to one side for so long, we had to do something to kind of tease it back towards the middle, so we were quite specific about it. The paper never said you have to fix every clavicle fracture you see. In fact, the paper never said we had to fix clavicle fractures in a specific group that we, we, we studied. What it did say was that here's the, here are the numbers. This is information that's good. You can use it with your patient to decide on a course of action. And if you want to tell your patient your fractures is, you know, 70% chance of healing, give it enough time. If you leave it alone and you'll probably be okay, that's perfectly acceptable to us. And that's the truth. If you're unhappy with 30% failure rate, either non-union or symptomatic malunion, and you have a reason to get back to doing things a bit more quickly, then surgery has some definite advantages for you and the risk is low. And that's all we ever said. We didn't want it to become absolute standard of care or standard practice guideline. It's information that is accurate and we did not have information that was accurate before the study, in my opinion. It was information that was accurate about the benefits of fixation that you can use in a discussion with your patient to come to a mutual decision about what to do. And I think that, that people, I've heard people say, oh, you've got to fix these, you've got to fix these. That's not the case. You've got to have a good discussion with your patient about the advantages of it, and then you can go from there. And the disadvantages. Now, that study didn't really show, but since then, we've shown that plate removal is a major issue in some people, especially if they're thin or short, et cetera. Um, so there are other issues there that have subsequently developed from that. Yeah, I think what the situation has evolved uh, now is that it, patients come expecting that you're going to tell them they need surgery because most, most patients, particularly in the athletic population, they know somebody that's had their clavicle fixed and it takes twice as long or three times as long to talk them out of surgery as it does to sign them up and do the procedure. That's exactly right. So, I mean, I have interesting cases where, you know, a medical student would see a patient in the ER and say, oh my gosh, that should be fixed. And when they come to my clinic, I'm standing there as the professor trying to convince them they don't need surgery. And they're like, wait a second, you know, I heard it should be fixed, doctor. It's like, it takes much longer to convince them that you don't need to have this done, and that may not be accurate information. But you talk about sports groups. So early on, a number of the bicycling groups, you know, bicycling is a very common mechanism for this. They were on their website saying, hey, if you get this fracture, here's a list of doctors who will fix it because it needs to be fixed. It was tremendous uh, push from, from those groups to get their the fractures fixed. And it has become the standard of care in the NHL and the NFL now. If you have a displaced clavicle fracture, it gets fixed surgically. There's some evidence, anecdotal evidence to support that. You get back to playing quicker and what typically is a you know, short career and your chance of re-injury is less. Um, but the sports groups definitely did promote this to a, to a large extent. Yeah. Mike, you've thought a lot about uh, how to fix these. Uh, what's your current thinking about, will, will there ever be an intramedullary implant that will, will be uh, useful and, 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 and really move plating uh, out of the way? Yeah, so um, by, by way of disclosure, I, I should disclose I'm a designer of, of clavicle plates, and so obviously that's a potential bias on my part. I have used IM devices for um, the clavicle. The one I was most interested in was a, was a flexible 
uh, was a, a nail that, that contoured the shape of clavicle when you, you could lock at both ends. Um, I don't think that's actually in production anymore, unfortunately. I do think that if you can design an IM system that you can do a fracture of this nature percutaneously and give it some kind of length uh, control and uh, rotational control, that would be an ideal solution it would help minimize uh, plate removal rates. And plate removal is, you know, remains the most common operation that subsequent to having it fixed is having to have the plate taken out. And you could argue about what the rate of that is. The IM devices in Europe, the, the smooth elastic nails, they seem to do fairly well in perhaps a physically smaller and, and more uh, compliant population, but there's a high rate of removal in those as well. Um, the more complex the fracture pattern, there's evidence that you know the I unlocked IM devices probably don't do quite as well as the plates. So I definitely think there's a role for IM devices. I was disappointed that the one I'd used for a while was, was seems to have been withdrawn from the market, but at some point, I think that it, it's gonna be possible. I think the ideal patient for an IM device is someone who has a canal big enough to accommodate it. And you know, definitely we see clavicles with a one or two millimeter canal very tight, especially in smaller young people where it's just not feasible to put one of these devices down or a simple fracture pattern. So when I did use them, it was simple fracture patterns, a big IM canal. That was actually a very successful device for me. But um, as I say, I don't think the perfect device has been designed yet. Mike, can I ask just a, a, a broader question, maybe maybe a bit more philosophical on, on this topic. When you, in 2007, saw the, or probably even prior to 2007, completed the trial, you saw the results. Did you have any idea um, what this study was going to do? Like, did you have a sense that this is going to be one of your probably most cited papers in your resume? And you've got lots of cited papers, but this was going to be the, the study and that looking back, you would almost become synonymous with you know, this particular bone and this particular treatment. And it's um, almost, you know, it's almost like, you know, it becomes so overwhelming uh, a brand associated with the work you've done. Did you think it was going to get that big at that time? Well, you're right. The study was published in 2007, and but I had the results long before that because the editorial process at the JBGS was so long and painful. It just took forever to get it out of Oh, sorry, Mark, I didn't we digress. Well, mind you, mind you, I took over in 2014, so no oh, offense. Oh, so, it's not, so it's not your fault. Okay. <laughs> uh, so um, I thought that it would, I thought that it had the potential to change practice, yes. So I've done a few studies in, in my career where I thought we had the potential to change practice on a limited basis. Did I think it would take off the way it did? Frankly, no. I thought that, you know, we would, we would see um, maybe some people changing. Uh, we know that at, at times it can be very difficult to change orthopedic practice and change uh, mentality people. Um, but I was surprised, very surprised to see how it took off. And I think one of the reasons it took off is that um, the data was good. The data was reproduced in a number of other studies. I, I would have people say, oh, you know, we're thinking of doing that study and then we saw yours, so we stopped. And I said, no, no, we, we want you to do, we want you to do studies in Britain and Holland and the States and see if the same results occur. We need that to know whether this is something that translates to all different populations, whether it's reproducible or not. So I think that the data was, was solid, it was reproduced a number of times. This is an operation that's within the technical grasp of most orthopedic surgeons. And you know, as opposed to a, a periastatal osteotomy, which is a great operation, but let's face it, there should be two or three people in each major center, you know, it makes you, uh, each, major city doing that operation everyone doesn't do that operation um and so it it was and then when you have a patient so you fix a displaced painful clavicle they're probably the happiest patients in your clinic like it's instant gratification how much better they feel 
Um, and it, it's logical that it would be that way and much more quickly to get back. And, and that's why I think it became so popular because it's true. And those patients do very well initially. Okay, thanks. Yeah, so Mike, you, you, you've stated a couple of times in this interview that it's within the grasp of the average orthopedic surgeon. So I, I have walked into the operating theater uh, when watching uh, a colleague from a different subspecialty other than orthopedic trauma and look at what they're doing. And the clavicle is stripped 360 degrees uh, with clamps uh, circumferentially. Uh, I wonder if you could uh, say a few words about the surgical approach and what, what's the way this should be done. So I'll talk about plating, for example. Um, I tend to be a superior plater. Um, there may be a role for anterior plating. Um, and I think there's some evidence that that's the case. Maybe the, uh, maybe the uh, plate removal rate's a bit less. Um, some people now use mini fragment plates, two plates, that kind of thing. But in general, um, what I try and do is, and we try and emphasize this in, in, uh, in the technique pipe papers that we publish, is if there are pieces, if there's comminution, I mean, if there's no comminution, it's pretty straightforward. And you, you don't need to strip circumferentially, just where you're going to put your plate clean up the fracture site. There's comminution. It's big enough to fix. I try and K-wire or lag that piece or fragment to either the proximal or distal fragment and, and make it more of a simple fracture pattern and then reduce that. If the cost of replacing that piece back where it belongs means completely stripping it of soft tissue, then that's not worth doing. Um, you want to try and bridge that fracture uh, with length and rotation correct, and then go from there. Most pre-contour replacements will very much help you do that. So if you have to completely strip a fragment to get it back where it belongs, and that's not a win for that particular fracture. And I've seen, and I've have referred similar cases to me where it's obvious that was what was done, and that's not a win. And despite that, most of the time, even when that's done, those fractures tend to unite, surprisingly enough, so. Right. I too am a superior plater because, you know, the, the pec origin is, is, is on the, anterior surface of the bone and you take it off to get a longer screw it never made it makes mechanical sense it doesn't make biologic sense so i've seen i've seen enough and this is not to you know make this anecdotal medicine but i've seen a number of patients who have had an anterior plate and the pec hasn't healed back up where it was supposed yeah. to so it kind of sags down and yeah. those tend to be particularly unhappy patients because they have the they have no benefit and and uh, some a bad outcome from having that approach done I think if you are going to do it, you want to make sure you get that pec back up where it belongs and, and secure it there. And that's important no matter how you plate it. I like to have two layers of soft tissue, a layer of, of uh, fascia muscle and, and one layer with some absorbable suture and then a separate skin layer on top of that. So you have two layers between you and any potential infecting organism. Mo, I'm going to let you let get the last question in. Yeah, I mean, having thought about this problem for well well over a decade if not probably approaching two by now mike what's left um or, or where do you think um future research in, in the area of clavicle fractures is going to be taken so i'll say right now the adolescent clavicle fracture so that's a huge area of controversy right now and um for the patient you know sort of 14 15 to let's say 19 with a displaced fracture we really don't know what to do it's clear the non-union rate is lower in that group um, but it's not zero. And even though when it heals, there are some patients who are significantly symptomatic. So uh, those of us who do referral work routinely see adolescents with displaced fractures who have it treated non-operatively and who come to see in the clinic and are very unhappy with their results, okay? I know that there's a number of papers out recently that say that most of these can be treated non-operatively. That's probably true. I think it is true. 
but I, but it's not clear from those papers who should be fixed. And I'm convinced that they should be, some of them should be fixed. And we don't know in the adolescent who that is and who that isn't. I, I've seen patients, you know, 15 year olds with three or four centimeters, literally of displacement, their shoulder looks completely asymmetric um, to go and see a pediatric orthopedic surgeon. And then they get told, oh, this will all be fine, just leave it alone. The parents come to me for a second opinion saying, we want this fracture fixed. And it's the exact same scenario I used to see in adult fractures in the day. And they say the same things about, about the, the surgeon. Oh, we, we told him our son wasn't happy. He didn't listen to us. Um, this isn't right. It's not good. Same thing I see here from adults. And so I think most of them can and should be treated non be no question about it. Uh, but there's some that should be fixed. And we don't have the study that shows that right now. And we need that from our pediatric colleagues. We need some kind of prospective randomized thing with the worst fractures in certain age groups to see um, what should be done and what should be, shouldn't be done in that age group. And secondly, I say trying to find a way to minimize hardware removal would be a good thing, practically speaking, going forward. That's still a common second operation after you have your clavicle fracture fixed. And if we can find a way to decrease that, I think that'd be very beneficial. So those two things, I think, would be something I would focus on. Great. Wonderful. Thank you. Something, some additional things to work on. But uh, Mike, congratulations on really uh, changing the practice uh, for the care of this fracture and all of the work of you and your colleagues. Uh, I think it's totally right to, to give kudos to the research coordinators, which really enable all these studies to, to, to function and come to fruition. But you've, uh, you've made a major contribution in, in this area and, and, and others. And we, uh, we thank you for visiting with us on Ortho Joe. And I hope that you don't have too many more patients to see or meetings to go to <laughs> and you can, you can go have a brew. And the last thing I'll say with great confidence is go Leafs. <laughs> Thanks that was awesome. Much, Thanks, Mike. This could be the year. <laughs> <laughs> I hope so.